was telling my son a few hours ago before I met you. My dog died this morning. My father's very sick. And I told my son, I said, whatever you do, make sure that you live your life in such a way that it outlives you. The Profile with Premier Christianity Magazine. Well, hello, you've joined us for The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales, and I have come all the way to Texas. Jay, whereabouts in Texas are we right now? We are in North Texas, about an hour outside of Dallas. Fantastic. Thank you for enlightening me. I don't know where I am. I just followed the sat-nav on the car to get here. Um, I'm completely uh, lost my bearings, but it's great to be here with you. Um, so, Jay, you're an evangelist, and, uh, and here on the show we like to get a person's testimony, first of all, and hear about their ministry. We were just talking a bit about the UK, and you have a big, a big heart for the UK, so I'd love to hear about that. But why don't we start at the beginning. Um, tell us a little bit about life growing up for you. Well, I grew up in, of course, living here in the South, uh, it's pretty customary. Everybody goes to church on Sunday. And it's very easy to be near the truth, but somehow stay very far from it. And so growing up in church, and that's all you ever knew, it would be easy to come to the conclusion that I did, that I was a true believer because I went to church and my mom taught Sunday school. But although I was there every week, there was no internal change. I knew about Jesus, but I didn't know Jesus personally. My dad was a very successful businessman here in the North Texas, Southern Oklahoma area, um, owned many convenience stores. So I grew up in a home where uh, there was a lot of success, but it it didn't transpire in my life. Yeah, Yeah, and it's so interesting that I speak to a lot of people with that kind of a story of on the one hand, you you know all the right things about God, or you even you read the Bible, but sometimes there's there's that disconnect between head and heart, or that disconnect between actually the, your faith becoming your own. So did your faith become your own in, in childhood, or did that come later? No, when I was young, um, I walked an aisle at a church, and, um, and so I believed that I was something that I wasn't all my life. I mean, if you would have asked me even up to the age of 21, which is the age at, at which I actually met Jesus, if you would have asked me the day before, I would have said, yes, yeah, sure, I'm a Christian. Everybody's a Christian, and I believe in God. But again, it was a knowledge about God. Yeah. It would be equivalent to, I, I know who the queen is. I don't know the queen personally. I can give you information about her, but to say I've met her would be a, a very similar example. Yeah. So tell me a bit about what happened to you in your teenage years, because life got very hard, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Um, I gave into a lot of peer pressure, uh, which is very common here in the States. Uh, there's a lot of temptations that come your age in uh, the high school years. I know it's a little bit different in, in, in UK as far as high school and college, but in your 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old age, you're exposed to things that you're not exposed to at a younger age. And because I didn't have a true relationship with Christ, I began to give in to those temptations, not knowing that giving in to those temptations was eventually going to lead to my complete demise. And, um, and so I developed addictions. Uh, I developed uh, terrible habits that uh, began to, they were seeds that were sown that didn't grow, of course, immediately, but eventually began to grow. 
And, uh, and then my life became completely unraveled by the time I was about 21. So tell me a bit more about what those addictions were and why they were so destructive for you and your teenagers. Yeah, it was primarily um, here in the States, in that age bracket, you are exposed to just about anything. But for me, it was a, primarily an alcohol issue because that was the accepted drug. If you were a person who did some of the harder drugs, you certainly didn't talk about it uh, because unlike today, you would have been somewhat ostracized. But at that time, if you commonly, pervasively, or even abused alcohol, it was considered the cool thing to do. Everybody did it. And so eventually that led to not only an addiction, but an escapism. Um, by the time I was 21, I was no longer in school. Um, I lost uh, my car, I lost my job, and I lost my girlfriend, which for a 21-year-old man it is a pretty big deal. And so when you no longer have those connections and you don't even have transportation, now again, you've got to realize I came from a very well-to-do family, and here I am, borderline homeless. I'm not homeless. I'm living in a, a, a very small rent house, but uh, my life it was a complete mess. So not only did I have this addiction, but I used this addiction because I didn't want to face reality. My, here my family was a success, and I'm this huge failure. Um, I have no car. I have All my friends are either in college or they're getting married, and here I am trying to drown away my sorrows. I had a, a very dark depression in my life at that time. And that's when suicidal thoughts began to un un unfold in my life. And with this alcohol addiction, looking back, can you sort of see how you were on a particular road? Was, was there a moment where it went from a bit of fun to actually realizing I'm dependent on this? I think it was primarily at that phase when this perfect storm unfolded because, again, me and a girl that I, a girl that I've been dating for quite some time, we split up, uh, and she was a huge role in my life, a huge factor in my life. And then, for a 21 year old male here in the United States, your girlfriend and your car and your job are kind of your identity. And I'm completely broke. Um, alcohol was no longer something fun to do on a quasi regular basis, but. I didn't want to face reality that my life was completely darkness had so enveloped me and depression had so set in situational depression that what else can you do? You're confined to your home all day and you can't stand to look at yourself in the mirror because you hate who you've become. I literally remember putting my fist through my own mirror and screaming at the shards of glass that remained of I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, because I hated who I had become. But I didn't know how to get out. It was just a, for people that are listening to this or reading this, some people understand this. There, there's a place that's so dark, that's so suffocating, that it seems there is no escape. That the only way out is to completely run away. Maybe that's drugs, alcohol, or whatever. Maybe food. Uh, who knows? either that or to end your life. And so for me, the longer I soaked in this darkness, in this rut, the more the option of ending my life seemed like the only answer that was left. So, so again, I don't know if you understood this at the time, but looking back, was the alcohol abuse 
you trying to deal with other pain in your life. Yes, no doubt. Undoubtedly. It was just another escapism. Um, anything that I could find that would help me be blurred, uh, that would help me take my mind off of, that would help me feel that in some way, you know, for some people, some people here in the States, they might cut themselves. I've met women who, they go shopping, they spend money. It's looking for a, 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 a way that doesn't work to solve an issue that's a very deep issue. So what happened next? Well, I, I at that time, again, I was living in this uh, very, very small duplex with a friend of mine. And, um, I mean, it was a, a very simple place. I, mean, I didn't even have a bed. I slept on a sofa every night. And uh, so... I start, and plus, I began to isolate myself, which is a common denominator for people who are suicidal. And uh, I started contemplating ending my life. Uh, I just didn't see any hope. Uh, I, I, I didn't know where else to turn. I, I was too ashamed to tell anyone um, of how desperate I had become. And I was already alone, which is a dangerous place to be in already. And so I started thinking about what are my options. And oftentimes the best way for me to describe it um, is 9-11. Anybody that's watched documentary footage of 9-11 remembers people that were in the Twin Towers and they were jumping to their death. And I've heard people say, how could somebody do that? But people who've been suicidal understand the people that were jumping out of the windows did not want to die. For them, it seemed as though the only solution to escape the pain. And for me, that's a perfect illustration of where I was and where many people are who've been suicidal. It's not that they want to die. They just don't want to live. And it seems as if this current jump, this current, in my case, taking a gun of escaping is easier than facing the pain that's surrounding me. And so, initially, I thought about shooting myself in the leg uh, because that way people would recognize something was wrong. I was craving attention, uh, someone to know. I didn't want to tell anybody, but I was hoping somebody would notice how dark this depression was. Um, and just sitting on it and thinking about it, eventually it led to the only real escape is to just end my life. And so um, I'd had a pistol. Uh, I know that's foreign in the UK, but here in the United States, it's very common. And I'd had a pistol that I used to take out in the country when I was riding horses and took the gun out and, and I cocked the hammer and put it to my temple to, to end my life. I was sitting there 21 years of age. Broke, an alcoholic, wasted my life in a pair of underwear with a gun to my head. And I uh, caught back the hammer and put my finger on the trigger. And I remember at the time there was this thought process going on in my head. When I pull the trigger, will I die or go to, when I die, will I go to heaven or hell? Because I had heard about heaven and hell my whole life growing up in the States and the South. And I thought, well, I don't even know if God is real, but if God is real, I'll be okay. Because, you know, I did go to church. And I was baptized. I'd done religious things. Of course, that wasn't true, but I believed it to be true. 
and uh, was sitting on the sofa with tears rolling down my cheeks, my finger on the trigger. And I had a roommate at the time, and he never, uh, he worked from 8 in the morning to 5 in the afternoon. He got a 30-minute lunch break, and our home was too far away to come home for lunch. And as I was squeezing the trigger, I heard someone pull up on the gravel driveway outside of our duplex. And uh, it startled me because no one came to my house during the middle of the day, my, my duplex. And so, because I was startled because that would be uncommon, I set the gun down and looked out the blinds, and it was my roommate. Well, I, I, I turned on the TV and slid the gun under the sofa, and I said, what are you doing home? And he said, man, you're not gonna believe this. My dad's never let me off work early in my life. But dad said I had been working so hard, he wanted me to take the rest of the day off with pay. And the second he said it, it was like somebody had speared me to the wall. I wasn't certain it was God, but I was questioning, is it possible that God is trying to keep me from killing myself? Again, I wasn't sure of it, but I was wondering if that was the case. And, and I suppose you were wondering that because in that incredibly low moment where you're about to end it all, you were thinking of heaven and hell and, and matters of God. And so for someone to interrupt you at the, at the moment that you're thinking about yeah. eternity must have felt significant. Yeah, it did. I mean, again, at this phase in my life, my, my thoughts were very deluded. But, and, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that I, I thought, it, I, I do now, but at the time... I, I didn't know if it was coincidence or, or God, but it was enough that for the next few weeks, I didn't feel comfortable, even though I wanted to die, I didn't feel comfortable ending my life because I wasn't certain if, if just maybe, because I mean, why would God care about me? I live an immoral life. I have an addiction. I have nothing to offer God. I have nothing to offer society. I've wasted my entire life. Why would God care about someone like me? I mean, if he's even real, I'm the last person that he would want anything to do with because even if he's real, I've spent my whole life denying him and defying him. Your roommate coming home saved your life. If he hadn't come home at that precise moment. Well, let me say this right quick. Um, I was speaking in Austin, Texas a few years ago and that roommate came to hear me speak. And I told my story and he came up to me after I finished speaking and he said, I'll never forget that day. He said, I did not know that you were contemplating ending your life. But he said, I've never felt, literally felt the presence of evil the way I felt it that day when I walked into that room. And when he said that, I remembered, I don't want to say hearing voices because I didn't audibly hear voices. But it was just as real as if I were. It was like one side was telling me, go ahead, go ahead. There's no other option. There's no other, there's no escape. And it seemed as though, again, it wasn't an audible voice, but there was something else saying, but wait, but wait. And there was this battle. But, but yeah, he told me he's never felt evil the way he felt that day. So after all of that, it sent you on a bit of a spiritual journey, a spiritual quest, didn't it? Well, yes and no. What happened was... Um, Within a couple of months, I found I was able to get an old beat-up vehicle, at least to have some transportation to try to find a job. Again, I didn't have a job. And uh, not because I couldn't work, but because I, I was such a wreck 
I wouldn't have been worth anything to a job. But I went over to my parents' house to wash clothes. And my mother knew that my life was had unraveled. She did not know I was suicidal. But there was a commercial on television that she had previously seen. And there was a guy coming to our town to do uh, what some of the viewers in the UK would know is like a Billy Graham crusade. It wasn't Billy Graham, but it was that type of a an outreach crusade, whatever you want to call it. And um, all the churches were coming together to try to reach people who were non-believers. And in this commercial, um, he briefly mentioned that he had attempted suicide. Now, again, my mother didn't know that, but I was washing clothes and I heard my mother call my name. And I walked into the den and she just pointed to the TV. It was a 30-second commercial. And I heard just enough that he said something about he was going to share his story of attempting suicide. And my mother said, I wish you would come hear him when he comes to town. And I told her, I don't, I don't want to hear any of that. You know, I grew up hearing that. I don't want to hear any of that God stuff. But it set me to thinking, maybe I could go. I don't want to hear about God. But maybe I could go and find out how to escape these thoughts of suicide. I still wasn't certain whether or not I was going to go, but I was considering it. Well, it was a few weeks later, and by the time this event was to take place, it was out of sight, out of mind. And I had other plans with a, a friend of mine, and uh, we were supposed to meet that night and go out drinking at the bars. And, uh, but he, he didn't show up. And so I had nothing to do, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to go to that meeting. I'll go late. I don't want to hear all the singing and all that, but I, I'll go hear what he has to say because maybe he can share something that can help me escape these, these suicidal thoughts. And so that's why I showed up. I, I wouldn't say it was a, a spiritual quest by any means because I didn't want to hear anything about God. Yeah. It was a quest to escape suicidal thoughts. Right. And was that the turning point then, that message? Yeah, it was. Um, I remember I walked in about 20 minutes late. He was just walking to the platform. And he wasn't to me like a typical preacher. He seemed authentic. He seemed real. He seemed like a, just a normal guy like me. He didn't change his voice. and he, he, he seemed more conversational. He was a preacher, but I don't know. He just seemed real. And while I had gone to hear his story of suicide, he never mentioned it. Really? Never said a word about it. And what he did do is he, you have to understand, growing up in the South, you've heard about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ your whole life. But I'd never heard it like that. The way he communicated the message, to me, it was as though, as though I was literally watching the crucifixion. I mean, it was literally that real. Because he went in uh, great detail. He, he went in the passages of Isaiah and, and Psalms where they ripped the beard off his face and they spit on his cheeks. And he talked about the, the length of the nails and, and his bones being out of joint and, and beating him with a cat of nine tails. And again, I'd heard the gospel a million times, but I'd never heard it like this. And I was so enthralled by it, you know. Um, and he gets to the end of this message and he says, um, some of you, now this, this was me. It was as though I was the only, there was a few thousand people there, but I, I felt like I was the only one there because he was, it was like he was talking to me. He said, some of you have been in church your whole life. You've heard about God your whole life. You know about God, but you don't know him personally. And for some of you, 
there may never be another opportunity for you to make things right with God. And he quoted a verse that I've since memorized. It was John 3, 36. He that has the Son has life. He who doesn't have the Son doesn't have life. And when he said that, I'm like, that's me. I don't have a life. I have existence, but I don't have a life. And um, so when, when he said that, for some of you, this may be the last opportunity that you ever have. It was the night I got arrested for the murder of Jesus Christ. It was a night that I realized that in spite of the, my life, my failure, that Jesus actually cared about me. And uh, he asked people to get out of their seat, to be unashamed, to be unapologetic if they wanted to make a stand for Christ. I started seeing people get out of their seats. And in that moment, I can honestly say, never before or since have I ever wanted anything that I wanted to know Him. It wasn't like the prayer I prayed when I was a young boy. I don't remember exactly what I said, but I know what was in my heart. My heart was, I want you in my life. Whatever that means, Jesus, forgive me. Holier than thou. Radical. Delusional. Ignorant. Perfect. It's time to challenge stereotypes about Christians, and Premier Christianity is leading the way. Transform your perceptions, broaden your horizons, open your mind to wide-ranging views. Read interviews with politicians, theologians, and TV presenters. Discover the breadth of the Christian spectrum. Be provoked, react, inspired, and informed. Get the print magazine and full online access for just £4.95 a month. Subscribe today at premierchristianity.com. Premier Christianity magazine. The bigger picture. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I am Sam Hells, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That is the magazine that sponsors this show. We bring you the latest news from a Christian perspective, interviews, reviews, columnists and more. And we publish every month in print and every day online. If you want access to both what we're doing on our website and also that fantastic print magazine, we are offering you a six-month subscription for just £9.99. Get the print magazine every month, full digital access, including our dedicated app for just £9.99. Take advantage of that right now, premierchristianity.com. This week's episode of The Profile was recorded on location in Texas. I met the evangelist Jay Lauder to hear some of his story of how he came to faith. We've been hearing a lot of that in part one. And in part two, we're digging into wider issues around evangelism, why Jay is so confident that big, large-scale events and altar calls still work in today's society. His views on all that and more, and a bit more of his story. You hear all of that coming up right now in part two. This is the rest of my interview with Jay Lauder. You say that everything just hit home in that message in a way it never done before. What do you what do you put that down to? Do you put that down to just this particular preacher's incredible ability in communication, or do you put it down to the Holy Spirit just choosing in that moment to make it real to you? I think it's both. Um, I, I believe that. Obviously, God gives different gifts, and the gift of the evangelist is a gift specifically laid out in Scripture. 
And an evangelist has a unique gift to communicate the gospel in such a way that non-believers relate to it, understand it, and receive it. An evangelist may not be near as effective at discipling believers as a pastor because that's not his gift, whereas a pastor may not be as effective at communicating to non-believers. So I think part of it was his gifting, but certainly um, you can't isolate the fact that I'd never felt God's spirit. I've heard, I'd heard hundreds of sermons. Now, I didn't know that was the Holy Spirit, but looking back now, um, the Holy Spirit unplugged my ears and opened my eyes in a way that I never had before. And so in that moment, you give your life to God. Was it, was it an instant thing of the, of the depression and the suicide lifting, or did that take a bit of time and working through? Well, I know of people who have a true relationship with Jesus, and they struggle with addiction, and they get clean, and then they fall back in. I know people that struggle their whole life who truly love Jesus. I know people who are miraculously healed of things instantaneously. And so you can't say it's always one way or the other. Sure. For me, it was instantaneous. I didn't know that. I knew something happened to me that night. I, I, I felt like the Lord had come into my life, but it seemed almost too good to be true. I, I knew I felt something I never felt, but I thought, will this really last? I mean, I had been to summer camps before. Will, will, it, will it really stay with me? And that's why I didn't want to tell anybody initially what had happened because I didn't want to say that I knew Jesus and then live a hypocritical life. So my intention was to see if Jesus really did live inside of me. And, uh, and only then would I tell someone. So I wasn't certain at first, but I knew something had happened. What's the difference that Jesus made in your in your life from that moment on? Well, when I really realized that God lived inside of me, about five days later, a friend of mine came by the house and we went out partying. And I don't, I, I drove home, I'm ashamed to say, I don't even remember driving home. Um, I, I could have easily killed myself or someone else. Um, and you have to understand, I, I've been doing this for years. I never felt guilty about it. I was never ashamed about it. And when I knew that Jesus really lived inside of me, as I woke up in the middle of the night, face down on my hardwood floor, and there was this overwhelming sense that I had done wrong, this overwhelming sense of conviction, this overwhelming sense that this is not the way to live my life. This is why people sometimes say, when you become a Christian, it's not that everything becomes easy and good. Sometimes you become a Christian, you start to feel bad. Yeah, <laughs> and it's exactly. because God's awakening your conscience. Exactly. Well, for me, it was a real pivotal moment because I thought, wait a minute, Jesus must live inside of me. For years, I've lived my life this way. I have never felt guilty about it. I've never been ashamed of it. And it's not that I changed my mind. Something changed inside of me to give me a different perspective of the lifestyle that I've been living for years. And um, I told my parents. I actually ended up moving back home with my mom and dad. My mom told me a few weeks after I got saved, my mom one day told me, I don't even know who you are. You don't look the same. You don't talk the same. God had so changed my life. You have to understand, no one in my family history has ever been a preacher. I, I was going to be a businessman. It was my dream, like my father. But 
Within a few weeks, all I wanted to do was help people like me. I knew there were other people who were broken, um, who were depressed, who were suicidal, who were hopeless, who were helpless. And I thought, what could I do with my life that could be better than helping other people like me? Now, I, I didn't say, oh, I'm going to become a preacher because I didn't. That, that was not something I would have ever dreamed of. I just wanted to help people. And so I started going down to like a Salvation Army. We called it the mission here, uh, talking to alcoholics and drug addicts and prostitutes, not to condemn them, but to share with them the hope that I had found. And um, eventually people started inviting me to come share my story. And eventually doors after doors after doors began to open. And I found that for me, there was nothing more rewarding. I was telling my son, a few hours ago before I met you, uh, my dog died this morning, my father's very sick. And I told my son, I said, whatever you do, make sure that you live your life in such a way that it outlives you. It doesn't matter how much money you make, how big your house is, how nice of a car you have. Those things matter nothing as you are one day facing death. And I told my son, I said, you want to do something with your life that's going to outlive you. And I feel like for me, and I'm not saying for anybody else, but for me, a life of worth is knowing that I may not make it back home today. I want to make sure that whenever my life comes to an end, there's something that outlives me. And I don't know of anything that can outlive me better than using my life to try to help. I'm not talking about spearing people. I'm not talking about forcing something on people. There's nothing I can do that would be greater than giving people the opportunity to experience the hope and the life change and the transformation that I found not through the church, not even through a preacher, but through an encounter with Christ. And it must give you immense, your story must give you immense confidence when you now stand on platforms and when you preach and when you share the gospel. You, you must have great confidence in doing that because you know that that kind of preaching can change lives because it changed your life. Yeah, it does. It does give you a confidence because you, you, you know that while people may look good and they may camouflage themselves, many of them are hurting in ways that you could never comprehend. I feel like I understand that. I relate to that. And knowing that I can relate to that because I've experienced it does give me a degree of confidence that I just love how God takes all the things that the enemy brings against you to destroy you and turns them into a weapon in your own hand. And so I think, I mean, this may sound crazy, but I, I really believe Satan was the one who tried to give it in my life because he knew there was potential. I sometimes wonder if he regrets taking me to the place that he did because he thought it would destroy me and now the very thing he brought against me is the very thing that's ruining his kingdom. And that makes me, brings me great satisfaction. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what, what the average day looks like for you now. Um, as I mentioned, you're an evangelist, you travel. Um, so just tell us a little bit, bring us up to date with what that looks like. Well, uh, to be honest with you, uh, the last few years because of COVID, uh, it slowed things down uh, immeasurably. But what that looks like is 
me traveling all over the world, including the UK, where I've been in London and, and uh, Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland on many, many occasions. Um, it means that I travel across the world. Uh, sometimes I'm speaking to um, a church. Uh, sometimes that means I'm speaking to an addiction center. Sometimes when I was in Northern Ireland, I went and spoke at the prison. Um, sometimes I'm speaking to a network of churches. Um, sometimes I'm speaking to a professional sports team. Um, it, it means that I'm constantly traveling, sharing my story, but more importantly, his story. And, and will you will you tailor your message depending on what country you're in or what the group of people is, or is it is it the same message to everyone? Well, yes. The answer to that's yes and no. The gospel, of course, is unchangeable, but the delivery. The message, as the old saying goes, the message remains the same, but the delivery, uh, it, it often has to, when in Rome, become as the Romans. And so I do try to cater the message, uh, not changing the message. The gospel is the gospel. But depending on who I'm speaking to, I, I want to relate to them the best way I possibly can. This, this weekend, I'll be speaking to a, a group of college students. These will be people between the ages of 19, 24 to 24 to 25. And so certainly I'll be talking to them from a standpoint from where I was. Yeah. But, but yes, um, the, the message remains the same, but, but delivery oftentimes is altered. And that's interesting you're, you're speaking to young people because, of course, as you'll know, the statistics around mental health and depression and suicide are, are horrific. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's an issue that so many people struggle with and um, you're able to speak to it from real experience, with real empathy, because you've been there. But why do you think that, that mental health problems seem to be getting worse rather than better? Yeah, I think that's a question that everybody's trying to find the answer for. The other day I was doing some research and I found that depression is the number one illness worldwide. Now, I know some, some of your listeners or people that may be reading this um, are going to think this is preposterous. Uh, but I'm not saying that it's all this, but I do believe that, that it is a tool of the enemy. I'm not saying that it's just that. But you see that the Bible says that Satan was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. And he wants to end people's lives. And so one of his best tactics is to isolate people to take away people's hope, to make them feel they have no worth or value, to steal from them their purpose and their mission. And so, I mean, I, I think there are different uh, different uh, platforms that have played a role. I think social media in some ways has played a role. I think people see an illusion of what they think life is. And although it looks real, it's not. And they measure their life by what they see that they believe to be true. And they feel like they don't measure up. I think the pandemic has played a part in that, where people have experienced a degree of restlessness and hopelessness. There's even now a new pandemic, uh, monkeypox that's, that's going around. I think that's a portion of it. I think another portion of it is a lack of leadership among the church. I think the church holds some responsibility. You and I were talking earlier that, and it's not just the UK, but how many churches in many countries, uh, uh, spiritual life is, almost non-existent. Uh, so I think the, the church carries a role in that. So I, I think all these things, uh, but, but I don't think, I think it would be 
improper to try to label it from one specific thing. Sure. And, and what about for the Christian who is experiencing depression? What hope can you offer them? Well, um, first of all, um, again, I think part of this is responsibility of the church in that there's been a stigma associated with mental health, with depression, with suicide. I think the church has failed in not being open about this, providing workshops, providing counsel. I know the church can't do everything, but oftentimes people are more isolated. I think the church, in some cases, aids this problem because they're not doing anything to combat it. I know when we, I've been, I've gone to therapy off and on my whole life. I'm not embarrassed of that. And, um, but I know initially when we, me and my wife first started going, we were having marriage trouble 20 years ago. We didn't tell anybody. You know why? Because we were afraid the church would judge us. We were afraid that people would gossip about us, that people would say things about us. Now we're very open about it now because we look at going to counseling from time to time, like tuning up your car. I mean, we, we often change our oil and change our tires. It's a good thing. And we believe it's a good thing for, 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 for marriage. And it's nothing to be ashamed of. I know that God sometimes heals people instantaneously. I know in some cases God used medication. Sometimes God uses therapy. But I do believe that church has a responsibility. And I think their primary responsibility is making it more open so that people who are struggling, they're under this illusion, I'm the only person with this issue. And you know why they think that? Because nobody else is talking about it because they're afraid to do so. Where if the church became more open, it would give people the opportunity to realize they're not the only one. Turning back to evangelism around the world, are there some places geographically where you just get a bigger response and there's just more spiritual openness in a particular nation than others? And I ask that because we as a magazine, we've reported on claimed revivals in, for example, South America or parts of Africa or even uh, parts of the persecuted church that seem to grow. You know, Christianity is growing like wildfire in, in China. And yet in the UK, things are very hard. In Europe, things are very hard. So I wonder, do you notice that when you give a gospel message, you notice in some places there just seems to be more of a spiritual openness? Yeah, I would say so. Um, but then again, I think it's just, there's some misunderstanding. I referenced earlier that I've been to Northern Ireland many times. And um, I'm going to say probably six or seven times. And I remember the first time I went, we were um, outside of Belfast in a place called Lurgan. And we had numerous churches of different denominations that came together for one large gathering. People put aside their religious differences, which, by the way, unsaved people don't care about. <laughs> and uh, I was told, now, Jay, you must understand, this is the UK. This is Northern Ireland. People don't make public displays of faith the way they do in the United States. And so, Jay, don't, don't, don't be surprised if people, they may respond to your message, but they won't do so publicly. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't believe that. <laughs> I didn't believe that. And I believe that anybody could talk to those folks in the UK um, over in Northern Ireland, and they would see that although that's what everyone told me, it didn't hold to be true. We saw hundreds of people who publicly made a stand for Christ. And so I think sometimes when people have that perception, it's an incorrect perception yeah. because they've not seen it. Sometimes we're our own worst enemies, aren't we, with that? The enemy we, is often in me. We can, uh, we can allow our own doubts and cynicism to get in the way of what God wants to do sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah well, we, we, we limit God to what we've seen. Mm. And God always operates best mm. when it's beyond what we can see or comprehend.
He likes it that way because that way he gets credit for it. So what you're, what you're saying is even in places that, that might appear hard, God can, God can do anything, which of course we'd agree with. But nevertheless, is it not still the case that, that some areas have a greater level of spiritual openness than others? Yeah, I, I, I guess I would say that. Um, I guess I would say that only because I have been in some areas where there has been a very real resistance. I'm not saying resistance from people, but a spiritual resistance that I, me and our team has felt. But again, I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to even answer that because I feel like some people could use that as an excuse. I've had friends right. even in England who've told me, Jay, evangelism doesn't work here. I don't believe that. I don't live in England, but I preached in England and I've seen what God can do. Yeah. Tell me a bit, bit about uh, Texas. We're, we're recording this right now in Texas in a lovely, lovely coffee shop. And um, it's great to be here. And, and you've got to help me out because I have a certain perception of what Christian faith is like here. Uh, I drive around, I see some very, very large mega churches uh, with, with literally thousands of people, which I've, I struggle to comprehend because we don't have any churches above, say, 5,000 in the UK. Uh, there are churches here of 20,000, yeah. uh, just down the road from where we are right now. Yes. Um, and so it seemed, and I, I've walked into cafes uh, like this one we're sitting in, and I've walked in, I'm like, oh, wow, okay, there's there's worship music playing as I, as I walk in. <laughs> that, that doesn't happen in any cafe or restaurant in the whole of, the whole of the UK. So in some ways, it feels like a kind of a Christian culture, if I can put it that way. Um, but I also know from speaking to people that that, that can be a problem because of some of what you share from your own story of, of you're immersed in a kind of Christianish culture, but you haven't perhaps quite grasped the gospel for yourself. So in a backwards kind of way, does that make Texas sometimes a bit of a difficult area to reach into? Unequivocally, the answer to that is yes. And I would say not only of Texas, I would say all of the South. I've preached all of the United States, all of the world. And oftentimes, the hardest place to preach is what we call the Bible Belt, which is the southern part of the United States, for the very reason that you said. People have become inoculated, acclimated. They, they, they've they've kind of got the, the enough of the truth to think they have it. As my parents would say, uh, so deep in the woods that you can't see the forest for the trees, uh, is something yeah. my parents would say. Uh, and there's nothing more dangerous than being close to the truth and it never taking hold in your life. And so there's a lot of people right here in Texas and they would say, well, I'm a good person. Um, I've not committed crimes. I pay my bills on time. I, I try to do the right thing. And so um, I'm very patriotic. God bless America. So, yeah, I mean, one day when I, uh, when I die and stand before God, he's going to see that I'm a good person. Well, of course, we know scripturally, God doesn't have a weight and scales to determine if your good outweighs your bad. So yes, in many ways, it is a disadvantage because people have become inoculated. They, they, in the same way that you might get a shot in your gums before they drill in your teeth, <laughs> you, you, they don't even recognize. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a very fair evaluation. Well, it's been fantastic to chat and hear about your ministry. How can people be praying for you? Well, I would say, number one, pray that uh, God would continue to open doors. Quite honestly, I, I've been praying for years that God would reopen the doors for our team in, in, uh, in more places in the UK. I've wanted to go to Scotland my whole life. I haven't been to England in a few years. We'd love to go back, but pray that God would open doors. Uh, second thing would be pray for those people who are going to, to hear the message. 
that God would open their eyes and their hearts. You know, the Bible says that Satan is the deceiver of an unbeliever's mind. And, uh, and then pray that God's Spirit would pour out His favor and His anointing on me and our organization so that we, we, we know that we can't do what we're supposed to do. We can do nothing apart from God's Spirit. It means nothing. If God's Spirit doesn't show up and anoint us, everything we're doing is wood, hay, and stubble. It, it won't last. So uh, I would say those would be, would be the main things. Well, if you're listening to this in Scotland or indeed any part of the UK, maybe you could be an answer to Jay's prayer in terms of him wanting to minister more in the UK than he has already. But Jay Lauder, thank you so much for spending some time with us at Premier Christian Radio. It's been a pleasure. Well, for me as well. And by the way, I love your accent. (laughs) (laughs) The feeling is mutual. (laughs) God bless you. You as well. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine. Thank you so much for listening to The Profile podcast. It's been great to have your company today, wherever you are listening from. I just wanted to finish the show today by letting you know about an exciting change we are making to this podcast. From now on, you will not receive one interview a week. No, you will receive two. And that is courtesy of my colleague, Andy Peck. You know, Andy has spent the past 17 years interviewing Christian leaders. And these leaders work in all sorts of areas from Christian charity to churches to the world of sports and TV and wider culture. Andy has been speaking to Christians in all these areas and more and doing some fantastic interviews with them. And I'm really pleased to say that in the coming weeks, you will get to hear some of the best interviews that my colleague Andy Peck has recorded on the topic of Christian leadership. It's an excellent resource that we're making available for free right here on the Profile Podcast. So from now on, midweek, you will receive a leadership special edition on your podcast feed, and it will be Andy interviewing a different Christian each week. And then, as usual on a Friday, you will hear one of the wider team here at Premiere doing these in-depth, hour-long interviews. We hope that you are continuing to enjoy them and get a lot out of them. If you are, we'd so appreciate it if you could give us a quick rating and a review wherever you found this podcast, as it helps other people to discover the show. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.